On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Joshua Lee Harris about the doctrine of analogy. So I cover all sorts of topics like just what is analogy, how does it contrast with things like university, what is ontological pluralism, and why might that be preferable to something like ontological monism, and what are the main views on analogy? What does Thomas Aquinas think? What does Henry of Ghent think? What does Scotus think? Is there anyone else that we should really care about or know about? And what has the contemporary reception of these figures been? Have these debates gone off the rails in any particular way? Does analogy really require a univocal core of meaning? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined by Matt Nectiros, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in trying to cultivate more serious thinking, we try to always remind our listeners of a couple of virtues that we like to exemplify, hopefully, and hopefully encourage as well, things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So yes, uh, me and Brandon, who started the podcast, are what you would call confessional reform Baptist, but we're not mad about it. And we like to talk to all sorts of people about all sorts of topics. So for those of you who are listening and want to leave a one-star review because we talk to people we disagree with and let them actually say what they think, um, don't put the one-star review. Though if you do, I will share it on social media because I think it's funny. And yeah, hopefully that'll encourage you to, to just be nice, play nice. Let's, let's be friends with people. We can, we can have disagreements. Anyway, that's my fun little intro here uh, to an esteemed Dr. Joshua Lee Harris. If you're not familiar, he's written a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been in my head since I was before I was doing this, and I had to do it. Um, Joshua Harris, this Joshua, Josh Harris is uh, very intelligent. I'm not saying anything about the other Josh Harris, but uh, he's written a ton of stuff on the doctrine of analogy trying to cash out what it means to speak analogically about God. I remember reading his papers in Faith of Philosophy and other places, having no idea who he was, and then years went by, and then I'm talking to my friend Joel about uh, trying to find serious philosophers in the Protestant tradition, and he mentions Josh Harris's name. I'm like, why do I, why is that familiar? I don't know who that is, and then I look, I'm like, wow, I've been citing, the, citing Josh and not realizing it. So I'm thrilled to have Josh on the podcast. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, before we get started, Josh, tell me a little bit about yourself, um, you know, just where you teach, those sort of things, and then maybe what was it that drew you to publishing so much material on this topic? Yeah, thanks, Jordan and, and Matt. I'm really happy to be here. Um, yeah, I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at the, the King's University in Edmonton, Alberta, uh, our air quality is currently very bad <laughs> because of wildfires that are just raging <laughs> across the, northwestern Canada, and uh, the smoke is kind of seeping into the northern United States. But you know, um, so yeah, we've we've seen better days. You know, our winters are long enough as it is. We have to stay inside long enough as it is. So it's just extra, you know, brutality of Alberta. You know, um, but yeah, no. So really glad to to talk with you guys. Um, 
Jordan, yeah, okay, you, you've cited me, so that, that makes you, um, you know, one of a very few. So, <laughs> And, uh, you know, what kind of benighted soul would leave a one-star review of this excellent podcast? It's beyond me, but, you know, okay. Um, uh, but anyway, okay, so I, I did my PhD at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, and they do a conjoint program with the Free University of Amsterdam. Their uh, school, a tiny little place at... Uh, that uh, was founded by the uh, kind of Kuyperian reformed tradition, and uh, it's still kind of the lifeblood of that institution. Um, but, you know, weirdly enough, <laughs> I decided to do a, a dissertation on Aquinas, on his uh, uh, doctrine of transcendentals. Um, but yeah, I, I, to answer your question, Jordan, why have I written so much about analogy? I think I might have a bit of a fetish. I mean, <laughs> I, just, uh, I think it's just a fascinating topic. It's a sort of locus. Uh, at which a lot of other like weighty metaphysic, uh, metaphysical issues kind of um, meet and converge. And uh, th that's one of the reasons I think it's really, really interesting. But um, I also want to talk about why I think it's important, because I know, <laughs> I know uh, Jordan and Matt, you guys mentioned that, you know, oh, well, we, we have some folks in, in ministry listening to this podcast. Uh, they're not just all nerds like me. And they might want to know what sort of payoff we might get out of this. And I actually think there is a payoff. And so I, I do uh, want to make sure we talk about that. Awesome. Well, this is going to be lots of fun. I remember I hadn't, I don't think I ever knew what analogy was for the longest time. Probably, I think I realized what it meant when I started reading more Doctrine of God literature. That was sort of like the entryway into thinking about what does analogy mean, reading Aquinas and the summer, the, the first. I don't know, 13 questions or so, you start to find, stumble your way in there. I don't remember which question it is. All you loyal Thomists out there will know exactly chapter and verse and will be mad that I don't know it by heart. Um, so I'll just pretend that I knew it and I'm playing to all the ministers who don't. So let's just start a little bit about analogy, university, equivocation, concepts like that. Give me that baseline sort of definition and I want to particularly, I'll press you more a little bit on analogy because it seems that depending on who you talk to, you're going to get a different version of that. And sometimes it almost sounds like what they're saying is what this other person over here is calling univocal. Um, so I just get, give me some clarity on what, what's going on between those definitions. No, there's a hundred, a hundred percent that that's what's going on. Um, uh, but it, can I just say a little bit about what's motivating this, why it's important? You know, um, yes. I think it's kind of important to do before we get into the technicalities. I mean, there is kind of, you know, for all you, you know, uh, wonderful people out there washing dishes or playing Uno with your kids. That's when I those are my prime podcast listening time, you know, activities, um, uh, you know, we are going to have to get in some t a little bit of technicality here, but I, I want to make sure it's well motivated. So I've taken some notes here. Uh, I think the, the first thing that's important, the way it comes up, say, in question 13, uh, you know, I'll give you a little bit of credit, it's question 13, article 5, you know, um, in Aquinas, which is kind of, I mean, obviously he mentions uh, the doctrine of divine naming and analogy in, in many other places as well, but that's usually kind of the main text that people are interested in when they're, when they're interested in Aquinas on analogy. It's really trying to, you can set it up as a sort of Scylla and Charybdis situation, right? So uh, you might remember that from Odysseus, you know, this sort of thing. Um, there's kind of two ways to go wrong, <laughs> and you want to chart a middle path between the two. And the, the first way to go wrong, the Scylla, is something like, uh, you know, the, 
something like conceptual idolatry, you know, and that's kind of a pejorative way to put that. And I don't want to like, especially moralize it or something like that. But it, it's just a concern that you have that was given voice to by, you know, Augustine, uh, among other people, when he said, you know, si comprehendis, non es Deus, right? If you comprehend it, then it's not God, right? God should transcend our normal cognitive apparatus in some way, right? <laughs> and, and they're just kind of taking that. I mean, th- there's good technical reasons why they think that's the case, but it, just as a rough and ready approximation of, of the sort of thing we want to be aware of, I think that's a good rough and ready way to characterize that side of things. The other side of things um, would be the Charybdis, the other way to go wrong, would be something like, well, you know, language about God, when we say things about God, oh, you know, it's just totally meaningless. Like, like we, we have literally no idea what we are saying when we're talking about God. You know, I won't name names, but, you know, certainly in like the 90s and, you know, and, and other uh, eras of philosophy that were less enlightening, like um, uh, certain postmodern philosophers seem to be given to that sort of way of thinking. It's like, well, you know, God so radically transcends, you know, uh, our ability to know him and, and to say meaningful, meaningful things about him that we're kind of left in this morass of, of equivocation, right? Um, analogy is supposed, to ch- is, is supposed to be a program for thinking about what it might mean to speak meaningfully of God, but also to be respectful of and cognizant of the way God transcends our normal capacities, uh, cognitive capacities in some way. So I just wanted to, to get that up front um, because I think that that's quite important. Now, there are other reasons why analogy is important. It's not just that. Um, I, th- I think metaphysical rigor is something that's that's really important here. That's actually, you know, to be honest, like I'm interested, I'd say I'm maybe more interested in analogy general as a metaphysical principle than I am specifically in the, in the idea of divine naming. I, th- I think as a model of divine naming, it re- works really well and we should learn from it. Um, but there are also some principled reasons just when we're thinking about what existence means, yeah, that, that sort of predicate, um, uh, that I think the, the doctrine of analogy does, does a good job capturing. Um, I think you need something like analogy uh, when we're doing natural theology and we're treating uh, philosophers and theologians from other traditions uh, seriously. So we, we treat, you know, if we were good readers of Romans 1 and we think that God is manifest in the, in the created order in a clear way, we should not be surprised when we see folk philosophers and theologians in other traditions saying true and meaningful things about the God that we worship, Yeah. And uh, it doesn't mean that we're all, you know, we're all saying the same thing in the end or whatever, or, you know. <laughs> um, you don't have to say anything like that. But, but what analogy is, we'll, we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Um, what it does is that it loosens some of the, the, the main, like, programmatic syntactical rules about the language that we use and the semantic rules that we use. I know that's technical, but I promise we'll unpack it. Um, and then finally, I think we got to use it to understand our own tradition. This is where I really do get frustrated with contemporary analytic philosophers of religion, um, especially, I have to say, the sort of first generation, like, like the Alvin Plantinga's and the Richard Swinburne. It's because they don't get this, frankly, that they misunderstand, frankly, <laughs> classical doctrines like simplicity, like immutability, these sorts of things. And I, so those are four, I, I know I'm talking to your guys' ear off, but those are motivations, like reasons to buy in, I think, uh, when, we're, when we're thinking about this.
Well, you can talk my ear off all day if this is the quality <laughs> content you're going to give me. So maybe a nice uh, on-ramp somewhat into the discussion, particularly for a lot of our historical nerds, is to sort of place the doctrine in a little bit of historical context, not like totally, but just giving me some names that connect to people. So thinking Thomas and how does he differ from Scotus versus Henry of Ghent, um, anyone else we should think of. So somebody like Scotus, I remember it was probably 2013, 2014. I'm reading Calvin for the first time and I'm reading on his ethics and I'm being led into this literature on voluntarism. And I'm like, what in the world is voluntarism? I have no idea. Tracks me to SCOTUS. I start reading SCOTUS, what's translated of him and available to me. And I'm reading this stuff on university and I find it very, uh, uh, I'm very sympathetic to the way SCOTUS is, is writing and explaining it. And as I read more, Thomas Williams and others, it seems to me, Tom Ward even, I don't know if he's really saying anything different than Thomas, but it seems like the way he's explaining it tracks better with how I think about language in general. So just, good. I know that's a big question, but good. I'll let you take it. So let's, you know, let's start, let's start with Thomas. Not, not because I, I think Thomas is preferable to SCOTUS necessarily on all questions related to analogy, but I think he does a good job framing the discussion in a way we see what is actually going on, okay? So first thing we have to kind of keep track of is that there's a linguistic dimension of analogy that you're gonna find in all these big hitter medieval guys like Thomas and Scotus. And then there's also a metaphysical dimension of analogy in all these guys, okay? Um, and so let's start a little bit with the linguistic one. This is the one that you're gonna see in, in question 13, article five in the, in the Prima Pars, for example. Um, and it's about the way we, it's about acts of predication, okay? And it's sometimes just easier to use examples, right? So um, here's, what, here's what Thomas, you know, is thinking about when he's thinking about univocity, okay? Here's a sentence. Jordan is human. Another sentence. Matt is human. Another sentence. Josh is human, okay? The predicate is human, right, <laughs> is going to be applicable in the same sense of all those different subjects, yeah, and we're going to see why metaphysically we think we're entitled to, to, you know, to say that. But for now, just kind of that's rough and ready. That's what's going on. Okay, cats are animals, dogs are animals. Okay, cats and dogs are animals in the same sense, right? You can make the same sorts of inferences, right? Uh, that you can by virtue of the the predicate, you know, this sort of thing. Water is an inorganic compound. Salt is an inorganic compound. Maybe it's getting tedious now. Okay, you get the idea. That's univocity. Equivocity is again about acts of predication, but it comes out a little bit differently. And again, it's just good to look at the examples. So that's a right triangle, right? He turned on the right street, okay? A right triangle is kind of calling attention to the fact that you've got kind of the 90 degree angle going on, and this is a species of triangle, right? This sort of thing. When you say he turned on the right street, you mean right in a different sense. You don't mean a 90-degree angle. Maybe, it's, maybe you're not turning at a 90-degree right, uh, angle. It's easy to imagine. What you mean is something like it's the correct street. Yeah. So those are, those are instances of a predicate, the predicate right, um, but they have different meanings. right? If you unpack them definitionally, you would say very different things. And so now we're kind of drifting into equivocity. There's the same word, but it's a different meaning. And you can tell that it's a different meaning when you unpack it. Okay, um, you know, okay, Wells Fargo is a bank, 
we don't have Wells Fargo in Canada, but you, you know, <laughs> um, the North Saskatchewan River, which is where, you know, runs through Edmonton, you should all know that, obviously, no, <laughs> um, has, has banks, okay? So bank as in a financial institution, bank as in a river bank, okay, that's the same word, but it's different meanings. That's equivocity. Um, and so those are, again, those are kind of the two sides of the coin. We don't want to say that our, the things that we say about God that are common to creatures are univocal. They, we don't quite mean the same thing when we say God is, is good and, and creatures are good. Um, and we'll, we'll try to unpack that later when we get technical. Um, but we also don't want it to be equivocal either. Thomas opts for, in 13.5, a view in which there's a sort of middle road, as I mentioned before. So when we say uh, when we say that God is good and we say that creatures are good, uh, we're using the same word and we use in some sense the same meaning, but also in some sense a different meaning. Now we're going to unpack that. <laughs> um, but so let, let's just go to some examples so that we're not just begging the question in the case of God. Okay, so Thomas uses some examples. We could say that Jordan is healthy. We can say that salads are healthy. When you unpack that, you see that, oh, well, salads are, are healthy because they lend themselves to the health of a human body, whereas a human body is kind of a, the intrinsic meaning. It's like, you know, the body is flourishing, you know, things are functioning properly, this sort of thing. Um, now, when you unpack that, you see that there are different meanings, but you also notice, importantly, that there is a, a systematic connection between those two meanings, yeah? So why is the salad healthy? The salad is healthy because, right, um, of, of uh, the way it lends, uh, lends health to the body, right? And the body is healthy in a primary way. The sal salad is healthy in, in a secondary way, okay? There's a relationship between prior and posterior. That's going to be common whenever we're dealing with analogy, okay? Um, all right, so, I mean, you know, uh, Jordan is a good person. Jordan is, uh, has a good computer. I don't know if you do. It seems like you do, okay? A good person yeah, is, is um, what you mean when you say uh, a good person is different from what you mean when you say something is a good computer, okay? Um, and you unpack that, but you're also going to see similarities as well, okay? And so this is what Thomas opts for on the linguistic side of things, okay? He wants a middle way. He wants, some, he wants to be able to, to give expression um, to the Neoplatonic conviction in Pseudo-Dionysius, among others, that God isn't just good, he's goodness itself, right? <laughs> um, whereas human beings can be good or bad, but they are good or bad insofar as they accrue accidents, right? You know, these sorts of things. And they don't have goodness uh, just definitionally by virtue of their, of their natures, right? Um, you know, we, we even have this in the scriptures. I mean, Thomas thinks you can read this right out of the scriptures. And um, in 1 John, we say that God isn't just loving, but he is love, right? In, in John 14, where it's, it's not that just that God says true things, it's that he's truth itself, okay? And so we want to capture this way, which, okay, creaturely goodness, creaturely truth, creaturely wisdom, the things that are going to be common to creatures in God, um, it's not, that it's, not a, that it's a pure equivocation, Okay, like the, it really is, the, as Thomas would say, the same res significatus, the same perfection, but the perfection in God is in an eminent way, right? He is the perfection itself, whereas in, in, in creatures, we are not the perfection itself. We have it by participation. Okay, but all right. So is, is, that, is that enough to like get it on the table? Um, yes. the, way, the way Thomas does it in 13.5 is probably too much, but <laughs> um, 
Do you, so yeah, go ahead. Tell me, like, so then where is SCOTUS really differing from what Thomas okay. is doing out there? Yeah. So SCOTUS is is answering in some way some of the same issues, but in, in other ways asking different sort of questions than Thomas is asking. Okay. So, so far I've only told you guys about the linguistic side of analogy, but it's really, really important to notice, even, even in Aquinas and SCOTUS, by, by the way, Aquinas and SCOTUS are going to be in agreement on the metaphysical side, and that's a really important thing to keep track of is that it's actually a way of talking about a mode of similarity, okay? And it's actually not about language at all. It's, a, it's actually a, a real similarity that you could find out there in the world and, in fact, would exist even if there weren't human beings around to talk about it, okay? And, in fact, it's really interesting to note, at least to me, a Thomist nerd like me, is that the first instance of analogy that you find in the Summa Theologiae is not in question 13. It's in question 4, article 3. And he's not talking about language at all, right? He's talking about the ways in which creatures are similar to God, okay? So here's, here's how it goes. So in, in the old Aristotelian metaphysics um, that is filtered through Ibn Sina. By the way, Ibn Sina is a really important player in this too. He's, he's actually kind of the principal influence on Scotus here. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. But we can recognize generic similarities, okay? So when I said that cats are animals and dogs are animals, it's because they belong to the same genus, right? They are the same kind of thing, in that respect. And we want to be a realist about that. There's some of the properties that they have in common that we really do recognize and that there's a similarity there between cats and dogs. Um, and that's a kind of univocity for Thomas, okay? Um, but there's also uh, sameness in species, right? So all, all three of us are members of the same species, um, but we can ask how many of them, uh, you know, are on this call, right? So it's not about what kind. We're all the same kind of thing. It's about how many when we're trying to deal with the differences, okay? Now, sameness in genus, sameness in, in uh, species is how Thomas thinks about uh, univocity, okay? So if, there, if we recognize the sameness in genus or if we recognize the sameness in species, then... Right? Because he's a realist about predication. He's a semantic realist. He, he thinks that our language maps onto the world uh, in terms of properties that, that things really do have. Right? Okay? Um, and that's going to be important later when we start talking about the analytic guys who, are, who have tried to abstract this from the metaphysics. But um, <laughs> uh, it's very important to note that when we get to SCOTUS, who does say that there are perfection terms that are univocal as predicated of God and creatures, Nevertheless, it is not the case for Scotus that he thinks that God and creatures belong to, say, a common genus, right? Say, like the genus of all beings or something like that, um, uh, of which creatures and God are just members, right? Creatures and God are not members of the same kind, right? And if they're not members of the same kind in a generic way for Scotus and Aquinas, they're also definitely not members of the same species, right? Okay, <laughs> and that, that should be, I think, a, a little bit more obvious for us, okay? Um, but it's really important that analogy is supposed to be a real similarity that is neither specific nor generic, okay? So the similarity that is picked out in the world when, we, when we're dealing with health or we're dealing with the relationship between substance and accidents, uh, accidents for example, um, those are real similarities, but they're not similarities that can be captured given the apparatus of genus, you know, specific difference, um, and species, okay? 
Um, and so that's really, really important to this. If it, when, we see, when we see analytic philosophers, you know, I don't want to be mean or anything, when we see analytic philosophers trying to do analogy in the way, say, that Swinburne does in, in The Coherence of Theism, without actually dealing with the metaphysical issues, then he's not really talking about the same thing as Aquinas or Scotus or any of these medieval guys. And it's, you know, it's okay. We don't have to ask the same sort of questions, but we do have to recognize that when Aquinas and Scotus and these guys are, are talking about these issues, they're talking about these things with an, a sort of Aristotelian metaphysics that is actually pretty elaborate and worked out, okay? Um, and so that's, that's kind of a, a way to get started on it. Scotus and Aquinas share the, the conviction that the way in which, for example, creatures are similar to God is an analogous similarity. You can see this straight up in, in Scotus's analysis. The metaphysical relationship, the real similarity that's out there in the world is analogous. It cannot be captured via um, uh, you know, generic or specific similarity. I guess I'm, I'm initially, I just wanted to sort of follow up on your, your comments on Scotus because, I mean, in, initially I'm sort of skeptical that you know, we, can, we can have sort of the same you know, we can have sort of the same metaphysics without that impacting our, our language, or in other words, our language not sort of dictating uh, a difference in, in the metaphysics. And mm. I, I guess maybe could you could you go into a little bit more detail into, um, you know, if, if if SCOTUS wants to affirm that at the level of being and at the level of metaphysics, there's analogy, if you will. Um, what is it then that grounds the similarity that he wants to affirm in language. Um, and maybe maybe just to, to put a sort of related question in there, I mean, sometimes you hear people talk uh, with, with analogy, the, the idea that you have to have this univocal core of meaning or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, maybe is, is that relevant at all here? And uh, yeah, but basically yeah. what's what's grounding the similarity for SCOTUS? Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question. So maybe we can get at it this way, okay? so. When you see Scotus talking about uh, univocal predication between God and creatures, in other words, when we say that God is good and creatures are good, we mean good uh, in the, you know, is good in the same sense, right? In some sense, whatever sense that is, okay? Here's what he means, and he actually tells us very explicitly what he means by univocity. And it is not the univocity that Aquinas is talking about, again, very explicitly. Here's what Scotus says. He's like, well, a term is univocal, in my sense, Scotus's sense, if to affirm and then deny it, yeah, yields a contradiction, okay? And you could see why that would be the case, right? So if you're affirming one thing <laughs> of, a, of a given subject and then uh, denying, you know, some other thing of a given subject, you're not going to get a contradiction there, right? There's no problem there. Terms, there's only a contradiction arising if we affirm and then deny something with the same meaning, Okay. He also says, he gives us another kind of quasi-definition of univocity uh, um, uh, in multiple places, actually, throughout his corpus. He says, well, it has to be something, if, if a term is uh, univocal, it has to be, um, be able to serve as a middle term in a syllogism, okay? So here's a syllogism uh, that would use a perfection term in a univocal way, okay? Premise one, God is purely good, Okay. <laughs> Uh, premise two, nothing that is purely good is evil. Conclusion, therefore, God is not evil. Scotus thinks you should be able to, <laughs> uh, to make that sort of inference. Yeah? 
and it, it, what is a middle term? A middle term is the term that shows up twice in the, in the syllogism, right? In that case, it was purely good, right? So it's the perfection term. Now, here's the thing. Aquinas says this. <laughs> he, he says very, very similar things uh, when he's talking. And, and how could he not, by the way? Because he thinks, obviously, as everyone knows, it, who's opened up the Summa in question two, that we can make, you know, argue, we can demonstrate, for example, the existence of God. He thinks existence is a predic- is a is a perfection, right? Um, uh, and and he thinks you ought to be able to make um, uh, valid inferences, right? Um, accordingly. So in that sense, in that very limited sense, uh, you know, uh, Scotus's sorry, Univasti, sorry, it's a technical discussion. Scotus's Univasti is something that you could imagine Aquinas affirming. Now, Aquinas wasn't around to affirm it, right? <laughs> and Scotus is being pretty innovative when he's talking about Univasti in this way. Um, uh, but you know, it's very similar, and I make this case in a piece that. When it's very similar to what Aquinas means when he says dicitur propriae, right? So that's said properly, or sometimes it's it's translated as said literally. I'm I'm a little you know sometimes I I gripe about that, but I, I think it's okay to to say said literally. But uh, but Thomas's said literally or said properly is very similar to what Scotus means when he says uh, dicitur univoce, right? Uh, said univocally. Um, because it has the same sort of impact. It has those, the, the fact that, you know, if you affirm and deny it, then you get a contradiction, right? And also you can make valid inferences from it. He says this explicitly. I mean, like in question 13, article 10, for example, that the contradiction piece, Aquinas can affirm that. Um, but in Scotus, it's very important to recognize that he thinks that, you know, univocity is a logical doctrine, Yeah. Univocity is what he means when he says we are, you know, what it takes, in other words, to be able to, to you know, yield contradictions when we affirm and deny or to make valid inferences. Um, it does not mean, right, that the relationship between God and creatures is a relation, the similarity between God and creatures is something that can be captured by virtue of a genus uh, or by virtue of their membership of a common genus or membership in a common species, okay? And so that on that front, it's a unique mode of similarity. By the way, it's a mode of similarity in which the subject term of a, a given proposition, right? So what's the subject term? So when we say God is good, then God is the subject term, right? When we're using, uh, when we're thinking about analogy, you know, God is good, creatures are good. Analogy allows the subject term to determine the meaning of the predicate term in ways that are not possible when we're using, uni- when we're predicating things univocally, yeah? And if you think about it, that's exactly what we want when we're trying to talk about the relationship between God and creatures. There is exactly, you know, it's the, the and whenever we're talking about God, right? Whenever we're talking about, you know, simplicity, immutability, so God is say. God is say in every way. And so the relationship between, from creatures to God is also going to reflect that. Right? It's not like the relationship between creatures to God is going to be exactly identical to some other creaturely relationship, like the relationship between me and my sons or something like that. Right? That's not going to be how it is. Right? And so what analogy, by letting the subject terms in the propositions order the meanings yeah, of the predicate terms, 
That's what's so powerful about it. That's why, that's why Avicenna in, you know, in the 11th century grabbed on to this Aristotelian idea and saw that it would be useful as a model for divine naming and then also uh, Aquinas and then Scotus uh, uh, following him, okay? Um, but yeah, so, so those are, I mean, I kind of lost track of your question. I think you, you're, you asked the question of what grounds the similarity, you know, it, for Scotus in particular, you know, I'm not sure he ever really gives a straightforward answer to that, to be honest, okay? Um, now for Thomas, what grounds the similarity is the fact that perfection terms in creatures simply are participations in divine life, yeah? And so it's really important for Aquinas that the world is just shot through right? uh, with the creative energy of God. Forgive me the metaphorical, poetic expression, but, but the metaphysics is just, it's built in from the very foundation of the metaphysics that the world is shot through, right? That it's a creature's very mode of existing before we even get into the, it's whatever properties it might have, right, is creaturely. But what is it to be a creature? What is it? It's obviously to, to uh, for Aquinas to participate in divine life. Yeah, um, that's just what it is to, to be a creature. Yeah, and so and so it's very important to kind of keep track of that. And I, I think that gets lost in certain analytic discussions now um, because we don't think of existence this way. We 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 think of existence in terms of. We've inherited this kind of Fragian and Quinean legacy where, oh, when you say that something exists, you just mean, you know, for those of you who have had good predicate logic, you know, and, and I like predicate logic. I teach it and I, it's super fun, but it's just, you know, the backwards E. That, that's what I'm thinking, you know, the existential quantifier. It just doesn't really get <laughs> um, uh, the idea of existence as a perfection, the idea that things can exist in a prior way, in a more perfect way than other than creatures, you know, this sort of thing, if, if you're talking about God and creatures. Um, and it also doesn't grasp the idea that being is not a genus. So I don't, this is where it, uh, it's going to be unfortunately technical. I don't know if you guys want to go into that, but I think you really do have to address that. Because uh, there's something unique about the existence predicate or being, right, for, for, for the Aristotelian tradition that you do have to be aware of. I don't know. Do you guys want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that you've kind of helped me out here because I pedagogically I'm sitting here thinking in my head, what do I ask next? But I also yeah. have all these questions I want to ask. And one of those is related to this particular topic of being. Because you sent me over a piece, I don't know if it's published yet or not, on ontological pluralism and monism. I'd love to hear you just cash that out and explain why you think ontological pluralism might solve some of these problems about being and why someone might be not so sympathetic to it. Like what are the challenges that are yeah. coming in there that people see? Because naturally when I look at it, I think without an, uh, without a trained eye, mm -hmm. first pass through, my questions start being well, like, well, I don't know. <laughs> how is it that ontological pluralism is really solving the problem here? Mm. It seems like we could just bracket out the how of being and just focus on the existence of being itself. Doesn't that end up collapsing us back into monism or something? But obviously, I am not the, the intelligent one no, here, no, so well. I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> it's actually a perfectly reasonable question. I mean, that is the idea that pluralism collapses into monism is exactly what most of these monists are saying. Now, they're wrong, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, well, we could talk about that, but... Um, uh, first of all, maybe we should say about what that is in the contemporary discussion. As I read it, as a, as a Thomist and an Aristotelian, 
I see these guys talking about ontological pluralism and monism as a, yet again this debate about uh, analogy and, and univocity, right? So the idea in pluralism is that there is more than one way to exist, yeah? So it's not just that everything exists in the same way and then they might have different properties, but actually that some differences among, you know, entities out there in the world, you know, <laughs> um, uh, are actually so profoundly different and deeply different that the difference actually goes into the very mode of existence itself. And so um, you have to ask yourself, about how would that be motivated, right? And, um, uh, and I think there is our ways to motivate it. But at first, I want to do that the being is not a genus because it's exactly related to this question. So Aristotle notices something very, and he's, it's incredibly perceptive in my view that there's something weird <laughs> that happens when we get up to our highest concepts, right? Or our most fundamental concepts. Pick your metaphor, right? So being, it sounds like, might, it, sounds like it might just be the, the largest class of things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so you've got, you know, human beings as a class of things. You've got animals as a, as a higher class of things, right? Maybe you've got substances as a higher class of things. And then maybe being is even higher than that because it captures not just substances but also accidents and, you know, this sort of thing. Okay. Um, but there's a weird thing that happens <laughs> when you get to the top of that uh, Porphyrian uh, schema. That's a technical term, but it doesn't matter. Um, okay. So think about what a how a genus works, okay? A genus animal, okay, divides into, say, human beings and cats. Let's, let's, let's use that as the example, Okay. The classical definition of the human being as a species of animal is that it's not just any kind of animal, but it's the rational animal, right? So in other words, the specific difference, the thing that's unique about human beings as members of the, of the genus animal is their rationality. Now what Aristotle notices, and I think what we should notice too if we're paying attention, is that if something is going to act as a specific difference, if something is going to be kind of the thing that specifies a member of a genus, yeah, then it can't itself be a species of the genus, yeah? <laughs> okay? So I know that's a, this is sometimes a mind bender, and I know, you know, a poor guy washing his dishes or whatever has <laughs> to think about it. But um, and it makes sense if you think about it. Rationality is not a member of the genus animal. Okay? And it's a good thing that it's not a member of the genus animal because otherwise it wouldn't be able to do the work that is necessary for differentiating human beings from other species of animal. Okay? Is, that, is that okay so far? Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> I know it's, it's a mind bender. But, um, and it, it really goes to like a very perceptive phenomenology of concept uh, formation. But anyway, it um, doesn't matter. But uh, what happens when you try to treat being like a genus? Okay. Let's say, let's say I want to say, okay, being is the genus and substance is a species, accidents, you know, quality, relation, these other species, so-called species. Avicenna actually speaks really perceptively. He calls them quasi-species <laughs> of being. Anyway, that's a dorky thing. But um, uh, what could possibly act as the specifying difference for the first species of being? Like if I'm going to try to trying to define the concept of substance, like uh, like uh, maybe it's like substance per se or like like being per se or something that's independent or something like that. What Aristotle notices 
when you try to divide being, okay, into species, is that there is literally nothing that could act as a specific difference. Why? Because, of course, being is going to encompass any possible specific difference that you could come up with. Yeah? And so, and so this is a problem. This, this is a problem if you're trying to find a definition for those first species of the so-called genus of being. Okay? In other words, what Aristotle recognizes is that being can be divided. He's like, okay, it can be divided into substance and accidents, but it cannot be divided in the way that a genus is divided yeah, into species via the extrinsic addition of a specific difference. Okay? Because what's outside of being, guys? There's only one thing outside of being, and it's non-being. And that's not, that's not going to differentiate anything, you know, <laughs> okay? Um, there's something unique that happens with our most fundamental concepts, our, our highest notions, um, that resists the sort of uh, definitional um, uh, ability that we have when we're dealing with uh, genus and, and species and this sort of thing, okay? Um, and this is why... You get this, this weird stuff about <laughs> analogy in, in Aristotle. So when you say that substances are beings and accidents are beings, yeah, you know, the, the, you're meaning the same thing in some sense, but you're meaning a different thing in another sense, so you have to be careful. Accidents exist in and through substances, but substances don't exist in and through accidents. It's a different mode of existence, right? It's not a property. So you've written on some of the contemporary misunderstandings of this doctrine quite a bit. I know you've got stuff on Wolterstorff and some of the debates that have gone on there. Other people that I think of, John Milbank, which seems like almost on the opposite side in a weird way, using terminology of analogy. Like, Help me to understand why are people misunderstanding what's actually being said and what directions are they taking it in? For, like, what's the, what's the payoff for them? to misunderstand this. Maybe, maybe there yeah. isn't a payoff. Maybe they're trying to get to something else and it just so happens to be that way. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So the Milbank thesis that became popular in the 90s and early 2000s, which um, has just been, I have to say, it's been decimated by serious medievalists, <laughs> like, like, is this idea that in SCOTUS, because as we talked about before, because he, he is willing to say that there are terms that can be said univocally of God and creatures, yeah, in the sense that, in the, in the, in the very specific sense of univocity that we mentioned earlier, namely to affirm and deny is to yield a contradiction, and then to, um, uh, it has to be something you can make valid inferences from, it has to be able to serve as a middle term um, in a syllogism. Uh, Milbank, as far as I understand the sort of contention, is that this kind of severs the relationship which was previously harmonious between kind of logic on the one hand, right? So the, the univocal space of logic and then the, um, uh, the space of metaphysics, okay? So he, he kind of thought that Scotus was, was creating a space of inference that was kind of detached from the world in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I think most people that have studied Scotus just think that that's wrong. I mean, I mean, it should it should also be under, understood that in Milbank he was doing like genealogy, right? So the uh, style of philosophy that <laughs> popularized by Nietzsche and you know these other kind of continental figures. And it's not that there's no insights there. I mean, in gene, you know, 
genealogies can be interesting, like intellectual histories can be interesting, and we can trace them back, and we can show that they're native to some bad intuition or something like that. Um, but I think he never really, to my knowledge, really tried to address the actual just exegetical and, and systematic, frankly, points that the the more like actual medievalists like readers of SCOTUS were, were dealing with. So you mentioned Thomas Williams before. I mean, yeah, okay. Um, and then, uh, so someone like Wolterstorff, on the other hand, um, in my view, just doesn't, again, it's it's this, I, and Swinburne, I think, too, and maybe Plantiga as well, um, you know, like, I'm grateful that they're engaging the medieval figures, but they're engaging the middle, medieval figures without the Aristotelian metaphysics. I mean, <laughs> like, like, when, when uh, Wolterstorff and Plantiga are doing metaphysics, it's, it's this basic kind of two-category ontology where you have individuals and you have properties, right? And then everything, you know, even God would, would have, um, would be an individual of properties, excuse me. <clears throat> um, and it turns out that when you try to think of divine simplicity in that way, for example, it comes out really weird. But, <laughs> but of course, like the whole point of, of thinking about analogy, of thinking about God and creatures actually existing in a fundamentally different way, like their very mode of existence is different before you even get into the properties, right? Um, well, then it makes a lot more sense. I mean, God exists in a way such that it doesn't make sense for him to have accidents. God exists in such a way that it doesn't make sense uh, for him to have goodness as just a quality, right? To qualify his being. Yeah? God is goodness itself. That is what it means to exist if you are God, right? And that's why, you know, um, it doesn't really make sense. Like, like these, uh, the sort of Plantiga classic argument and does God have a nature or whatever, where he says, well, like simplicity can't be right because then God would be a property, well, what have you done when you've done that? You've reified a creaturely mode of existence, grafted it onto God, yeah, namely the distinction between individuals and properties, and then said, this doesn't make sense. And so the response should be, like, I agree, it doesn't make sense. But also, like, that's not what's going on. <laughs> like, you've kind of missed the point of, of, of divine simplicity. You've missed, you certainly missed the point of analogy um, as a precursor to divine simplicity and understanding it. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that you get that are a little bit weird, okay, in, in analytic philosophy of religion, okay. So for Plantica, for somebody like him, when I think about what he's doing, it reminds me of a story that I heard. Uh, somebody was in a, a course or a seminar or something with Plantica, and he's trying to tell something, some metaphysical story and links it to Thomas. Well, Thomas says X, and Eleanor Stump's in the room. And, you know, she raises her hands like, well, that's not actually quite what Thomas says. He, he's more like X, Y, Z. And it seems that Plantica's response here is really telling for what he's trying to do. And he was like, well, it's an interesting story either way. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I'm not trying to, you know, do historical exegesis. Yeah. So I'm wondering, is it necessarily they're mis... So it seems like somebody like Plantiga, he's misunderstanding it, but he's not really trying to misunderstand. He's, he's yeah. trying to do something else. No, that's right. Whereas there are... Some, more, like, I don't know, what, is it third wave analytic philosophers now that seem to be intentionally obfuscating certain things? So I see, not ob, maybe obfuscating isn't the right word, but I think of my friend Ryan Mullins. I'll preface it with friend because he is a friend. I actually just met with him and hung out with him two days ago in the, in the flesh. So Ryan and I disagree significantly on a lot of these matters, but it seems to me he's trying to push against things like analogy for very different reasons. Mm. 
than somebody like Plantico or maybe even Wolterstorff would be doing. I don't know. Yeah, if maybe that tracks yeah. with how you're <laughs> thinking can, about. I don't. I cannot speak to what Ryan, what goes through um, <laughs> Ryan Mullen's <laughs> head, but you Fair know, enough. I have I have written. I, I mean, I have uh, read what he's written, and uh, yeah, I mean, it just. Um, it just doesn't, in my view, doesn't really hit on any of the interesting things. Like the, the interesting things are that what these like true analytic metaphysicians are talking about now with this monism and pluralism debate, right? Um, what, what do we mean when we say that something exists? It's actually remarkably interesting. <laughs> like, um, and Thomas and Ibn Sina and Scotus were all very interested in this. And it strikes me that some of the contemporary philosophers, I don't know if this applies to anyone in particular, um, just don't really have the patience to kind of sit through that. Um, but I think it's crucial to kind of integrating the metaphysics, right? So like you, you asked before about ontological monism versus pluralism, okay? And uh, then I started talking about Aristotle because I thought I had to preface that. But maybe you should come back to that as a, as a way of, yeah, and I know we're almost out of time. But um, I think what's going on with the monists is that they want to say that everything exists in the same way but they have different properties. So someone like Peter Van Inwagen, right, says this explicitly um, because he's one of the few that actually works on this and it, like in a metaphysical register rather than just talking about God, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, it sounds plausible at first, <laughs> but then when you think about what it means to say something exists, okay, um, it comes out really weird if we're just going to rely on the logical machinery of the existential quantifier, Okay. So think about, and I apologize for those who haven't taken predicate logic, but what do, how do we symbolize? Maybe you guys know this. Can I quiz you? If you, if you were going to symbolize the proposition in logic, uh, the proposition Jordan exists, how would you do it? Do you, know, do you recall? I mean, there exists some X such that X is Jordan, right? I mean, it's, there's a backwards E. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, Jordan is not a property unless it's a hexaity, right? Jordan should come out as a lowercase j, but of course the quantifier only ranges, right, over variables. It doesn't range over uh, um, individual constants, right? So what Quine and these other folks have said about the existence of individuals is that with the way we should handle it, I mean, Russell at one point even said that that sentence doesn't make sense. It's like, what? Like, <laughs> Jordan exists as a sentence that doesn't make sense? Maybe you should revisit your logic, Russell, you know? Um, anyway, uh, but, and you can see why, though, because the quantifier ranges over variables. It doesn't range over names, right? Um, but the way that Quine did it, he, didn't, he wasn't quite that crazy. He, say, he, said that, um, uh, he said that the way we should handle those cases is that there is an X such that X is identical with Jordan, Okay. So the idea that now existence has been relegated to a sort of self-identity, yeah? But come on, guys. You, we all, all three of us know that existence is something different from self-identity. It might be true that everything that exists is self-identical. That's fine. But come on, guys. You got to exist first <laughs> before you can be self-identity. Okay. I mean, okay. But um, you get the idea. Um, there's something mysterious about this existence predicate that's not captured in the logic and in fact, even in ordinary language, it's hard to know what's going on because, I mean, even Kant mentioned this as well. It's like existence is not a predicate. Why did he say that? There's a sense in which he was correct. There's, you know, in order to have a property in the first place, you have to exist, 
Yeah. <laughs> so to say that there's this substance out there that has existence, like in the way that you would have, you know, humanity or, or have, you know, the property of being six foot tall or whatever, doesn't quite make sense. There's something weird about it. The existence runs deeper, right, than just, um, uh, than just ordinary properties. It's not, a, it's not a property in that sense, right? Now, what we're arguing for those of us who are pluralists is say existence is not the only predicate that, that is like that, okay? When you say something is a substance, yeah, you, again, you mean something that's deeper than what a property can capture, okay? And how do I know that? Because if you just look at the logic, you can see it, right? If I were to say that Jordan is an individual and I modeled the, um, the property of individuality as a, as a capital I or something like that, Again, it would be redundant, right? We already know that Jordan is an individual because he's correctly modeled as a, as a, as a proper name, right? It's already built into the logic. It runs deeper than just what a property can express, right? That's the, it's the same idea when we're talking about God and creatures, yeah? God's, God's simplicity, his goodness, right? All these things, the fact that he's identical, all these perfection terms, what these ancient and medieval philosophers saw and theologians, of course, what they saw is that God's existence itself is, right, profoundly different <laughs> than what it is to exist as a creature. And our cognitive faculties, through, you know, no fault of our own, are ordered towards capturing individuals and their properties, yeah, subjects and predicates. So it's no, it's no surprise that we would do this reification. I don't necessarily blame the analytic philosophers for doing it. But it is something that has to be qualified. Or we're, at the very worst, we're not going to understand our own tradition. But we're also not going to get this extremely rich metaphysical <laughs> appreciation of the weirdness of the existence predicate. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, uh, uh, I kind of went on a wild tangent there. but No, I love it. So the, I feel like I could talk to you for another three hours <laughs> yeah. uh, without problem. And on this same topic and still not run out of content here. So, but I'm running out of time, uh, unfortunately, because I have a normal job like normal humans do and don't have the flexibility that I wish I had for all things That is a real job. So <laughs> what I need to ask you at this point of the stage is, number one, um, I need to tell you, maybe it's not asking, I need to tell you that we'll have to have you back on the podcast again <laughs> to talk about all fun things related to this. Secondly, though, for those who are interested and following your work, reading all the papers that you got. I think if I remember, you have a website. So you remind me the best place to go to keep up with the stuff that you're publishing. Oh, yeah. I have a website. I mean, um, Joshua Lee Harris. <laughs> I put the Lee in there because uh, I don't want to be mistaken for, uh, you know, the other Joshua Harris. No, you know, not a critique of the other Joshua Harris. I don't I can't <laughs> say I keep up with what's going on with the other Joshua Harris. I wish him well. But I've been. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so yeah, if no, you I just Google you. Joshua Lee Harris philosopher, you'll find the website. I've forgotten the actual URL. <laughs> but you know, uh, it's it's usually pretty tr reliable for me to Google a person's name and just put philosopher at the end, yeah. and it will pick it out, even if it's a super generic name, just because there's so few yeah, philosophers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who could uh, possibly Matt, bear to listen to this episode on on being is not a genus? It, it's understandable why there's so few philosophers. <laughs> no way. No, this, this is going to we're going to suddenly see a proliferation of philosophers <laughs> after this episode. Yeah. Um, Matt, I, I've Baptist got like two ones minutes. too. Yeah, that's right. So, 
I don't know if you wanted to ask one more question and I give Josh like 90 seconds to answer <laughs> it in a lightning round fashion. Oh man. Um, yeah. I, I, very, very quickly, I guess one thing I'm wondering is with, with ontological pluralism, mm. I mean, something strikes me as right about SCOTUS's concern mm. to make sure we can make the inferences yeah. we want to make. Um, I mean, would this require a, a pretty substantial revision of predicate logic and that sort of thing to, okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to ask you exactly how to, how to do that, but it seems like you have these different existential quantifiers now. How do you secure inferences yeah, across totally. them? Yeah, that's a perfect question. That's exact. That's Trenton Merrick's point in a in an article. He's, he calls it like the only way to be. I think it's in Noose yeah. or something. It's worth reading. Um, and there are some. You know, I, I think this is rather unfortunate. Like folks like Chris McDaniel and Jason Turner have taken to like um, uh, like invoking new quantifiers and that like this sort of thing. I kind of think that you should not do that. There's this wonderful paper by Byron Simmons, who's a pluralist, who thinks that um, the problem there is the quantificational count <laughs> of the existence predicate to begin with, and that's what pluralists should be attuned to. But you don't have to lose the, the generic quantifier, right? Almost every pluralist, even, even McDaniel and Turner, in fact, they all agree with this. And interestingly, it's like for the same reasons that SCOTUS, you know, affirmed the generic sense of being in the, in, a, in that looser sense, not that being is a genus, <laughs> that's the cardinal sin, but <laughs> but the univocal sense of being that is, that is common to, in that very specific sense, um, such that it secures valid inferences, such that it, when it's affirmed and denied, it yields a contradiction, this sort of thing. Um, but okay, I've gone over my 90 seconds. Read that, read that paper by uh, Byron Simmons and, and uh, Trenton Merricks. You'll see that the pluralists are clearly right and the pluralists are wrong. <laughs> well, everybody, you'll have to stay tuned for part two as we cover all <laughs> the fun things related to this. So everybody has been tuning in. Thanks, as always, for listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.